The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry, built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle, from the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback. There's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. And right now, your local Toyota dealer has more vehicles in stock and is making delivery on new vehicles almost every day. So visit your local Toyota dealer. And check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Offers end April 1st. Toyota, let's go places. And just like that, we're back, and we're back in a big way. You know why it's big, because it is game week even in the sec imagine folks like us allowed to play and watch football Ooh, what a world we live in i am josh pate as i said this is the late kick extra it is a wall-to-wall twice a week mailbag edition of the late kick brand you submit the questions joshpate706 at gmail.com you can send them to me on twitter at late kick josh give me a follow while you're there or and i gotta start begging you for this again because even though they're still coming in we've slowed down a little bit leave a five-star review, and submit your question in the written review section for the podcast. Please, please, please. We want to get to a 1,000. I want so badly to be able to use that 1,000 emoji instead of just the 100 emoji, but I can't do it. Tani says I can't do it until we get to a 1,000 podcast reviews and five-star reviews. So please, deliver those. Now, we got a lot to get to, and it is a jam-packed week. Please, if you haven't already, subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. You guys ask what you can do to support. These are the things, and they're all free of charge. So subscribe over there. We are doing our grand season previews this week, and some of those will not be on the show, so you won't hear them here necessarily in the podcast feed You'll have to go there to see them. And it's a good place for content during the year either. It's not just Late Kick, Barton and Bud. We do their clips over there. We do their shows over there. So it's a great reservoir. I would contend it is the best reservoir of college football content on YouTube, bar none. Great place. And again, it's all free. And one more thing that I wanted to get to before we dive into what is, again, a loaded mailbag this Tuesday morning. I wanted to address... At this point, just the hundreds upon hundreds of comments that I get every week, some of them are email, a lot of them are in the podcast review and and the YouTube channel, everywhere that you can submit comments. Obviously, I don't read comments on here. I read the questions on here, but I just wanted to acknowledge, as I do periodically, I read every one of your comments, and I want to thank you so much, and here's the validation. The validation for me in reading what you guys say, it's always a version of the same thing. And... Basically, what you say is, thank you for giving us what we want. Thank you for not trying to force down our throats what we don't want and what we come to sports to escape. And it's validation that you guys get what we're doing here because that's exactly what we're doing. It's a pretty simple formula. You want something, and I try in my shows, and we at 24-7 Sports try to deliver that to you. And the stuff that you want to avoid... We shave it all out. It's never in there to begin with. We make a concerted effort to be different. 
on a day-to-day basis. When I'm structuring our shows, I don't put together a show for me. I put together a show for you. And you have made it crystal clear. I have yet to get a single email asking me to put politics in these shows, put all kinds of societal issues in these shows. There are plenty of places you can go for it. All you guys ask for is to give you college football. That's what you want. And so that's what I do. I got political views. I got societal views. This is not the place you'll hear them from me. That is my eternal vow to you. So thank you for validating the idea that what we're doing here is kind of catching on a little bit. And thank you for supporting that and continuing to support that. So we've got a jam-packed season ahead of us and a jam-packed show this morning. And here's how we're going to start it off. No Regrets leads us off this morning. And he says, am I crazy in thinking Kentucky is a true sleeper team in the SEC this year? I don't think this is crazy. When we're talking sleeper, we're obviously not talking about a preseason top 10 team. I'll be honest with you, since we're talking Kentucky, though, I think the SEC's two biggest sleeper teams are playing each other this Saturday in week one. One of them's Kentucky. The other one is the Auburn Tigers. The Kentucky Wildcats, when you're talking about the third position in the SEC, normally that's reserved for Tennessee. Preseason talk has Georgia, Florida, any combination, and then you hear Kentucky And based on what I could tell, when you get to, or you hear Tennessee, and when you get to Kentucky, rather, you hear Kentucky mixed in with the quote-unquote rest of the SEC East and South Carolina, Missouri, whoever in the world's left. And so I don't think that. I think Kentucky is a different level of team this year, and they have some things that work. You know, they have line of scrimmage. They have those elements in place. They got a great offensive line. They have basically a low-variance model of football. And it's not the kind of offense that's going to churn out 50 points a week. It's not that kind of team. That's not Kentucky football. But what they are is I think they're going to be very consistent performance-wise. And it's a low-variance model, meaning I'm pretty confident in what I'm going to get from them week to week. Maybe some weeks it's not enough to win. Maybe some weeks it is. But there's another variable there. And the other variable is you. If you're playing against them, and Kentucky is, it will be, at least this year, to me, the kind of team that can capitalize big time on your screw-ups and can limit games and can shave possessions off a game. And whereas you may be used to getting the ball 14 times a game, maybe you get it nine against Kentucky. And that's where turnovers come into play. And that's where being able to just slowly lean on you and lean on you and lean on you comes into play. You can win football games like that. And so Kentucky certainly is a sleeper, but I want you to think about their opponent in week one for the other sleeper. You know, Auburn is a team that has a quarterback that's probably the most overlooked returning quarterback in America. Bo Nix, I've talked about my respect for his talent level. He is very talented. We, by the way, are releasing our Auburn Grand Season Preview on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel today, where I'm giving you Everything from best, worst, most likely record projections, areas of focus, biggest questions, mood tracker, everything. So make sure you go look for that and subscribe there. Even if you're not an Auburn fan, I think it would be interesting for you. But think about Bo Nix. Back to him. Bo Nix is a guy who's very talented. Had his ups and downs last year, obviously. He won the quarterback competition against Joey Gatewood, who has since transferred to Kentucky and is now waiting to be cleared by the SEC League office. What a small world we live in, as it turns out. But Bo Nix had his ups and downs. Now he's got a new offensive coordinator in there. Last year's system was not necessarily tailor-made to develop him as a passer. You think Chad Morris may be different? We'll see. How much control does Chad Morris have there? What kind of parts, what kind of pieces does Bo Nix have around him? My point is, if their offensive line pans out, you know, if their running back stable ends up 
churning and being the engine of that team, and you have one person ahead of, and I guess on top of, Seth Williams at receiver that ends up emerging, that's the kind of team that can kind of all of a sudden just be left standing towards the end of the year, and you say, all right, playoff stretch time, conference championship stretch time, who are we looking at here? You know who's still alive in the East? Kentucky. You know who's still alive over there in the West? Auburn. We thought it may be A&M or, you know, maybe LSU still has enough. No, it's Auburn over there. Those are the two sleeper teams to me in the SEC. Jax is up next. What are the variables that determine if a program falls off for a few years and then bounces back versus a program falling off and then just slipping into 20 plus years of mediocrity? The way I see it, Florida State probably won't pull a Nebraska simply because of recruiting advantages, but we still have a long way to go. What do you think? Jax is asking a very good question here, and I want you to think long and hard about this. He's asking, hey, what's the difference in those teams that kind of fall off a few years and then get things right and they're right back in the mix versus teams that should be good? History says they should be good. Common sense says they should be good, but they just fall off and you don't hear from them for like 10 or 20 years. Here is the difference, Jax. The difference is the unwillingness to do what I call torching the barn and killing the rats. No one wants to hit the reset button. No one wants to start from scratch. Obviously, it is very hard, if not impossible, to sell to a fan base. Here's the problem, though. Sometimes the situation warrants that you torch the barn and you kill the rats. But in lieu of doing that, some people have fatally, in college football history, decided that they wanted to start a rebuild on a compromised foundation. I'll give you a really good example, nice metaphorical example. This show is powered by metaphors. I live in downtown Nashville, Tennessee. We had an EF3 tornado come through here. It ended up being an EF4 once it got across the river uh, back in March, March 3rd, a year to the day after I was in an EF4 tornado in Beauregard, Alabama. Very blessed slash fortunate to have made it through both of those. One I was chasing, one I was running from. Hiding from, I guess, is a better term. So anyway, back to the story. Across the street here at my apartment complex, which got sideswiped by that tornado, there are buildings that took direct hits. And there are, there are two complexes specifically I'm thinking about. One of them suffered really bad damage. The other one suffered some pretty significant damage. And then several others got wiped out. There were construction crews and engineering companies that came in here to test the structural integrity of those buildings. They had to decide whether they were going to tear them down or not. And one of them did not get a passing grade. And so from the outside, my untrained eye looked at that building and said, I mean, yeah, it looks a little worse for wear, but this is a brand new apartment complex, by the way. And it looks like if, you know, if you kind of touch it up here, touch it up there, it looks like it'd be good to go. But the engineers came in and said otherwise. Now, if I were in charge of that apartment complex, I would not have decided to tear it down. I would have just done what I thought needed to be done, and I would have started to rebuild. And you know what would have happened? One day, two years from now, that place would have collapsed in on itself because I did not rebuild it the right way. Across the street, the other complex got level. It got totally level. And so uh, it, it, it looked good. From the outside, like I said, it looked good, but they had to level it. Now, the other one that was next to it, they are ap- actually, someone has come in and said, all right, this one, we can keep the skeleton. It's still good to go. But even then, they're having to do a whole lot of repairs. But the point is, you would think that not having to tear it down, oh, that's the better approach. Just like a program, you would think not having to 
totally gut this entire place and just hit the reset button and dump everything. We don't need to do that. Think about how far along we are. You know, we've already recruited some good players here and we have some good folks on this staff. That's great. That is great. But a lot of those pieces are associated with the pieces that didn't work and they're a part of a failed culture. And sometimes it's better to just wipe the slate clean. But again, Jax, that's easy for me to say. I'm sitting here behind a microphone. I don't have to sell this vision to thousands of fans and president and board of directors, alumni, donors, etc. That's an entirely different ballgame. Adam is next. Adam says, what if we get to December and we see a lot of two or three lost teams at the top of the Power Five conferences with no undefeated or one lost team? That would be pretty crazy, Adam, but not impossible. He continues. But let's say Central Florida and Louisiana come out undefeated. Would this put those teams in the playoff? This scenario could play out, and the Big Ten and SEC can scoff at this all they want, but I'm sure there's going to be some embarrassing losses in their conferences too. I'm sure there will be, Adam. I don't necessarily know if Ohio State's going to be victim of one of those, but it has happened to the Buckeyes in the past, so crazier things indeed have happened. Uh, let's just keep this in mind. Louisiana had to fight and claw their guts out to force overtime against Georgia Saturday. Let me scratch that. Georgia State. Yeah, it was Georgia State they played. In what used to be Turner Field, by the way. I can't tell you how many dozens of games I've seen there. No Georgia State games yet, though. Anyway, long way to go for Billy Napier and company. And as good as Central Florida looked, you know, the biggest feather in their cap they figured would be North Carolina and Georgia Tech. North Carolina's off the schedule now, so the Georgia Tech game. And they romped over Georgia Tech Saturday, also in Atlanta, ironically enough. Well, what if Georgia Tech starts losing? So that's the big power five feather in their cap. Well, that's not carrying a whole lot of weight. Then you get into the same arguments. And I think you and I both know, Adam, even though your question suggested otherwise, I don't think we're going to have a bunch of two and three loss teams. I mean, surely somebody, Clemson, for example, you think Clemson's got two or three losses? I don't know how in the world that happens, unless you have some kind of external COVID-related situation where Trevor Lawrence and half the team have to miss games or something like that. So it's very far-fetched. I I assume it's not impossible, but it's very far-fetched. Nick is next up. Based on what you've seen to this point in the season, do you think the continuity and experience from last year makes a bigger difference on offense or defense? Easy answer to me, Nick, here, and that is defense. So he's, he's essentially asking, where is it more valuable to have a bunch of guys coming back and the same coordinators and just uh, returning pieces that you used last year? I think it's defense because defense is the side of the ball where reacting instead of thinking is key. You know, if you really think about it like that, and that's the way I've always thought about defense. And the only way to achieve that is through repetition. Offense knows what's coming ahead of time. They're the ones who call the plays. Defense, you are reacting. But see, when you got younger guys who haven't gone through spring and who you are counting on, as most college programs have to do to some degree. I mean, Alabama announced their starting lineup yesterday, and they had, I think, two or three true freshmen on their defensive depth chart. So everyone's going to have some young kids in there, some programs more than not. But when you take spring away from them, repetition is the only way that you take a kid from thinking to reacting because it's instinct and you have to wire instinct, especially in a new program. You can do it in high school. Doing it in college is a different thing. So defense, if I can have a bunch of guys who I can know from week one on are not out there thinking, but are just reacting, that gives me a leg up over most of the competition I'm going to play. 
I'm a play. Listen to that. I'm a play. Uh, next up is Josh. I don't think I planted this question myself. Let's see how it sounds before I take credit or not. If Notre Dame goes 10 and one with one close loss and it gets them into the playoff, does it increase the likelihood they'll join a conference going forward? No, I didn't ask that question. All right. So Josh, let me, let me kind of break this down into separate parts. So first you're asking if Notre Dame goes 10 and one and they got one close loss and it gets them to the playoff. Well, the first question I would ask is, did they win the ACC? If they didn't win the ACC, I don't really know where the conference element here comes into play because uh, I don't think association with the ACC is catapulting them any more so than they'd be able to be catapulted normally unless you're saying maybe their one loss was to Clemson and Clemson is a team that's in the playoff and so Notre Dame may be next in line. I kind of get where you're going there, but I don't think that in and of itself is enough to springboard them into saying, all right, it's time for us to join a conference. And I really, otherwise, I don't think it would do it either way, to be honest with you. I don't think that if Notre Dame won the ACC this year and the committee looked at them and said, we're letting you in here, but just know it's only because you won the ACC. Even then, I don't think it's something that pushes them over that line. I've spoken about this before. I just think the value proposition Notre Dame currently has makes too much sense, being an independent, to just voluntarily give that up. They have a full television deal. That's something that entire conferences have. Notre Dame's just got one. Like, the SEC has a deal with CBS. Notre Dame has a deal with NBC. They have the equivalent of what an entire conference does. The payout's not exactly equal because the inventory is not equal, but you understand what I'm saying. So they have full power over their TV deal. They have full power and autonomy over their schedule. They can schedule whoever they want to. They have an equal seat at the playoff table. They have an equal seat. When we vote on these things, the SEC gets a vote and the Big 12 gets a vote. Jack Swarbrick, the athletic director at Notre Dame, gets a vote in a lot of these matters that is equal to that of the entire conference if you are the ACC or the Pac-12. Why would you give all this up just for the sake of upping your college football playoff percentage chances a little bit each year. I don't think I would. I'll say it that way. I don't think I would. Reed is next. What do you think about Oregon's chances of making the playoff if they go undefeated through what looks like a seven-game conference-only schedule? Reed, I got to shoot straight. I think it's unlikely for a few reasons. One of them we know, obviously, just significantly fewer games than the SEC or the Big 12 or the ACC. And so you already have that eight ball that you're behind. And then you're asking about the Big Ten. Did Ohio State get a full season in? Is the G5 in the mix? And this is before we even ask one of the more basic questions here. And that is, how good did Oregon look? And how strong did the Pac-12 look? Because I got to be honest with you, there's a distinct possibility that once the Pac-12 gets cranked up, we don't know what it's going to look like. It could be, Reed, that we look out there and, yeah, maybe Oregon looks legit, but we can't even differentiate the competition they're playing against versus the competition that Cincinnati or UCF has played against in this one particular year. And so if we can't discern that, then Oregon is certainly not automatically getting a bump just because they have a Power 5 conference sticker on their helmet. It's not impossible, but I do think it is fairly unlikely as we sit here, hopefully with the Pac-12 eventually starting their season. We'll reassess that as time goes on. Patrick is next up. 
Oh, what a pop there. That was that was vocal. That was not technical. You mentioned Florida, says Patrick, in your Ramen Noodle Express. I'll explain that in a second. And it seems as though you think they'll be able to handle Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss. You touched on a couple of points that led you to this conclusion. However, as a nervous Gator fan that truly wants Florida to be back, can you take a deeper dive into why you think Vegas got the line wrong and soothe my fears that this game may be close? What is the Ramen Noodle Express? Well, I believe in the power of branding, so everyone just has best bets. I had to put a nice fancy label on mine. And what's fancier than ramen noodles? So for years, I used to make fun of people who make ill-advised bets. And I would call it their ramen noodle special because their kids are probably going to have to survive off a diet of that over the next two weeks because dad blew his money on Akron minus four and a half. So I call this the ramen noodle express. It is meant to keep you off the ramen noodle diet and your kids too. And so what we do is every Sunday show, every late kick live, I give out our early best bet. That is our first game. I've already run our numbers the night before. So I already know what our projected line on a game would be. We then wait for the Vegas numbers to come out, and we compare us to them. We really trust our numbers. Uh, Me and a partner have honed this for several years. So that is an anonymous partner. I am here. My name is Josh Pate. Or you can go Soft J, Josh Pate. That works as well. And so we pick out a game that just stands out. It's got a blinking red light next to it. And this week it was Florida. We got Florida up over a three-touchdown favorite, and I added some manual checks in there, and it brought it down to, I think, Florida minus 19.5. But anyway, when Florida minus 12.5 was sitting there in the opener against Ole Miss, really loved it. Now, Patrick, you asked for a deeper dive. I'm going to give this to you on tonight's episode of Late Kick Live, which is Tuesday night. If you listen to the podcast version of that, that means you'll get it tomorrow morning. So I'm going to give you a deeper dive there. But I did want to explain what the Ramen Noodle Express is. We do five per week, and I could deliver them at any time, including on this podcast. Spoiler alert, I don't have one today, but I could. And I will eventually be delivering some because when the lines are right during the week dictates when we want to move on them. I deliver them all by Thursday night, and we summarize them at the end of the Thursday night show. So that's what the Ramen Noodle Express is for those of you, probably all of you, who that didn't make sense to. All right, we're going to take a quick ad break. When we come back, oh man, we got a very, very in-depth question from old pal, old friend of the show, Lame Lowball. And I'm going to do something that not a lot of people do these days. I am going to go to bat for bowl season. And I'm going to tell you, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Stay with me. Explore the weaponization of rap lyrics in the criminal justice system in the new documentary, As We Speak, Rap Music on Trial. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Terms apply. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Fantasy baseball draft season is upon us, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Sample, six times per week throughout March. Sleepers, breakouts, busts, live mock drafts, spring training updates, and everything in between every Monday through Saturday. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. Lame Lowball asks one of the pressing questions of our time here, our college football time at least. In a non-COVID year, what are your thoughts on decreasing the number of bowl games in college football? To me, it feels like a lot of bowl games don't matter, and you can see it in the TV ratings and the fans and the stands and the players sitting out. 
If not decreasing the number of games, how do we make bowl season better? All right, here we go. Let me unpack this with my personal theory. My personal theory is the old buffet theory on this. No one walks into a buffet and complains because there's too much food. I don't ever go into bowl season complaining that there are too many games. First thing I ask myself is, what are the alternatives? What would I be watching if not for this bowl game? And the answer is nothing. There's You ever looked at the TV lineup December 22nd? December 27th? Ugh. And so there's nothing that is an alternative that I want to watch. If I don't want to watch the game, no one's forcing me to watch it. TV ratings, as you mentioned there, for bowl games, they do quite well, actually. I think that's just a little inaccurate. And they I'm not talking about how Air Force versus Miami of Ohio fares against Alabama LSU. What, we're sh- what we should be looking at, at least, is how that game fares heads up against what would be airing instead of that. And what would be airing is a darts tournament or a replay of a bowling championship. That's what would be playing. So those TV ratings are just fine. They are more than acceptable to the folks who are in charge of deciding such things. Attendance is not a good indicator at all for the next point here as a metric of how good bowl season is because some of those bowl games feature matchups of smaller schools who don't even draw well at home. So bowl games are TV products. Think of some of those lower tier, like the Bahamas Bowl. You're you're not getting 40,000 people to travel down there, even if they want to. They can't afford to do it. That is a TV product. It might as well be played in a TV studio. They just don't make TV studios that big. ESPN, this is kind of in the weeds. You guys don't really care about this. ESPN owns a number of these bowl games just so they can own that TV product. To them, it's just like an episode of SportsCenter. So if people show up, that's great. And the New Year's Day games, like those are going to draw the college football playoff, the New Year's Six games, those are going to draw. And some other bowl games draw pretty well, but that's not the primary goal. Any kind of gate receipt they get, that's above and beyond what the core purpose there is. Also, consider this. For everybody, well, not everybody, but some people maybe, who knock the TV ratings, How many hundreds of thousands of people who have not watched a single Mac game all year will end up watching Central Michigan playing a bowl game? I can tell you it's a bunch of them. They're in pools. uh, They are betting on the game. They have nothing better to do. You'd never watch Central Michigan at 2 p.m. Eastern time on a Saturday in week seven if you're a Texas fan. But you're absolutely watching them if they're playing in a standalone game at 8 o'clock on a random Thursday night in late December. So that's another good point, I think, to defend bowl season here. And as for the how we make it better, I'm not sure it needs improvement. But if you think it does, if you think it needs improvement, structure it to where the bowl season is an attachment of the regular season. That's how I do it. I don't think this is ever in the offing. I don't think this would ever happen. But think about a model where we played the regular season, you know, played the schedule any way you want it, and have bowl season, but have it attached to the regular season, and then decide your college football playoff field after bowl season is done. That would radically change the approach and the view that people have of bowl season if they already have a problem with it. And I'll tell you, for anyone who says, oh, okay, yeah, I mean, if if you got a bunch of teams ranked in the top seven who are in bowl games, yeah, they're still fighting to stay alive. But what about teams that are already out of it? Well, that brings me to my last point. I don't think this will happen either. 
as much as we're against just flat out revenue sharing in the regular season, and I'm wholeheartedly against it too, um, for varying reasons, I am all for name, image, and likeness and profitability off that. Uh, you do not have a claim to revenue sharing with the University of Texas if you play safety for them. For a million reasons, no. Go profit all you want to on your name. Go profit all you want to. But that long horn on the side of your helmet was making money long before you got there, friend. However, if you do want to improve the stakes and you want to improve the product and play on the field, I would love to attach a revenue sharing model to bowl games. And I would love to do like the XFL used to do, incentivize winning. Winners get the money. Losers, you can still get your swag bag and you can get all your free book bags and you know a nice little sampler soap kit or whatever else they give away, a watch. But you're getting cold, hard cash if you win the bowl game. And every player gets the same. That's fine. But I would love to see, you know, the starting safety for Texas Tech knowing, hey, man, they're like $1,300 for me on the line in this game. Yeah, I think that would be fun. So I think I just fixed bowl season for anyone who thinks it's broken. And I don't think it's broken. Awesome three is next up. If Georgia, Alabama, Oklahoma, and Texas all end the season 10-1, and one, who do you think gets into the playoff? Well, if Georgia and Alabama end the season 10-1, and one, I would assume that one of them lost in the regular season and then avenged that loss in the SEC title game. If that's the case, both of them are in the playoff. Don't care what's happened elsewhere in the country. You are not going through a 10-game SEC season, 10-1, and with your only loss to each other and being left out of any playoff. I don't think that's going to happen. And that's independent of whatever else happens. If Ohio State's undefeated and Clemson are undefeated, those two are in, along with Georgia and Alabama, and I don't care what happens elsewhere because that's how much I would respect people who achieve that or teams who achieve that. So you asked if Georgia, Bama, Oklahoma, and Texas all end up 10-1. and I put Georgia and Bama in. Oklahoma and Texas, that would be contingent on what else happened in the country. Did Clemson go undefeated? Because if they did, they're going to be in. What happened to Ohio State? How many games did they play? How impressive did they look? I think that that would be one of the more heated debates in the history of college football. If you had, let's say, let's even say Ohio, let's say Ohio State gets almost all their games in, because I think it's a pretty fine needle they have to thread up there in the Big Ten to do this. Let's say they were to go 8-0, and and that's including the conference title game. So they get all but one of the regular season games in, they play the conference title game, so they go 8-0. And you are Oklahoma and, or Texas, because I picked Texas to win the Big 12. Let's say Texas is a 10-1 and Big 12 champ. They play three more games than Ohio State. Can you imagine that argument? Texas, the only thing keeping us from being back is you fools over there realizing we played three more games than Ohio State did. Don't be penalizing us because we had our act together as a conference the whole time and theirs didn't. And then Ohio State screams, Hey, we wanted to play, dude. We never even stopped practicing. D don't criticize us because we got a lot of you-know-whats running our ship up here. Don't penalize us for that. Plus, dude, we'd be favored by like 15 points against you on a neutral field. Listen to Vegas, committee. Listen to the odds makers. Yeah, that would get heated really, really quick. So the answer is I have no clue. It would be contingent on what the rest of the country looked like. That's my answer. Tristan is next. If you could go back and relive any one play in college football history, what would it be? I thought about this, and I was thinking about some more recent examples. 
But here's the one I'd, I'd relive. This may be a surprise to some of you who have heard my swinging philosophy on the G5. But that Boise State Statue of Liberty play to win the 07 Fiesta Bowl, I remember that so, so vividly. I'd relive that one. I view it as kind of the original G5 upset, the big one. Now, I know it upsets had happened before that, but that was the G5 upset. Like, that was the one that put that brand of football and that level of football on the map nationally. Keep in mind, that was still a time where there was this massive gulf. There was a canyon's gap between the talent level of your upper-tier Power Five versus a G5. You're talking about the University of Oklahoma under Bob Stoops. They had played in a national title game, I think, the year before that. And... um I was trying to think if I had that right. I think either the year before or the year after. Either way, Oklahoma was really good at that point. And Boise is in Idaho. And they have a blue field and a coach that some hardcore college football fans know the name of. And that's about all you know about Boise State at that point. And my goodness, if they didn't go down there and shock Oklahoma. And here's what I remember. I was working down at the uh, sample department and the fabric store that I've told you about in Columbus on 12th Street, for those interested. And so I remember the day of that game, we had this big office bowl pool going and it was neck and neck. And of course, everyone had put maximum confidence on Oklahoma for that game. So, you know, we were just taking side bets on margin of victory for Oklahoma that night. And then that happened. And I remember the only other time I've had chill bumps kind of actually not, not tweeting chills. Okay. I mean, real chills happen, not just the kind people say happens to them on Twitter. The only other time I've felt that was when Michigan botched the punt snap and Michigan State recovered it. And this was just a few years ago and they scored to win the game with no time on the clock. Oh, he has trouble with the snap. The Sean McDonough call. Uh, remind me to tell you something about Sean McDonough, which you can't do because you're not here, but I'll remember. So anyway, that was the only other time that I had. And let me delicately put it this way a bodily reaction to a college football game. The Oh, it didn't come out well. It didn't. Jordan, leave it in. Just leave it in. Let me compose myself. Three, two, one. The kind of reaction to a college football game, bowl or otherwise, as I did there. So my point is, that was back when there wasn't all this contention between G5 and P5. It was just, oh, look, David may actually pull this one out. And I don't know if you guys have realized this, but David always wins that battle. Um, some of you need to crack a Bible because you keep being shocked at David winning. And that's the whole point of David and Goliath. So that was really cool. I mean, that was a big deal. So the next day in the sample department, obviously, we were just reliving that on radio and then watching the replay. Someone had a laptop back there where we got some sketchy Wi-Fi that we were hawking from the next building over. Anyway, my point about Sean McDonough, the only other time I've heard his voice crack the likes of which it cracked during that Michigan Michigan State game was in the 1992 NLCS game seven. Braves Pirates, Braves down two to nothing. Bottom of the ninth, they storm all the way back, and with a I think a two two count on him, maybe hacked at the two one no, two one oh a two one count. Anyway, I was replaying Sean McDonough's call in my head. Francisco Cabrera line drive base hit through the five six hole over there on the left side, and Sid Bream the. Oh, man, the fastest 14 seconds in the history of the playoffs. Scores from second, slides in, beats the tag of Mike Lavalliard and Sean McDonough, while everyone in the South always reveres the Skip Carey radio call, and it was great. 
where he said Braves win about 17 times. Sean McDonough had one of the most classic national broadcast baseball calls of all time. This side of Giants win the pennant in 1951. It was great. And his voice cracked in 1992, just like it did far more recently in that Michigan-Michigan State game. What has happened to this podcast? Tristan asked about bowl games. I'm sitting here talking about the National League Championship Series. All right, let's move on. Jacob is next up. Jacob says, or asks rather, what are your thoughts on Joe Milton winning the starting quarterback job at Michigan? Jacob, since now we know we're going to have a Michigan football season, this is extremely intriguing. This is one of the most intriguing players, period, to watch in America this year. It's been a while since anyone has used Game Changer to describe the upside of a Michigan quarterback. And that's the kind of terminology they're using up there to describe him. You and I don't know, and really they don't know until they tee it up and he's playing a 17-17 game against Wisconsin early in the fourth quarter. But the point is, they love his upside. And the schedule makes it tough on them this year. They probably have one of, if not the toughest schedules in the Big Ten, but I'm not watching Michigan in 2020 and thinking the finish line to what matters here is 2020. I'm watching them. I'm thinking well beyond. I'm thinking about Josh Gaddis, offensive coordinator there, being in the homes of recruits and being on the phone with recruits. And I know what he's been trying to sell them, but it's all a vision because what he's selling them as what the future of Michigan offense will be and Michigan football will be, no one has seen it there. So he's having to ask people to just have blind faith. Well, what if he can take Joe Milton this year and he can start showing them glimpses of that? Then all of a sudden he's saying, you see what I'm talking about? Now, we don't have the athletes. We don't have the perimeter skill talent quite yet. You are that perimeter skill talent. Please come here. Well, then it makes it a whole lot more believable, therefore a whole lot more sellable. And so it could be that Michigan goes, it could be they're a two or three loss team this year, but there are sparks all over the place that lead us to believe 2021 is going to be real. 2021, that Big Ten could actually be wide open for the first time in quite a while. Ben is next. Will any team in the Big 12 be able to challenge Texas and Oklahoma? I don't think so, Ben. I don't think so. I, our, our brave partner here, Barton Simmons, picked Oklahoma State to make the playoff. And as they struggled and crawled over broken glass to a win over Tulsa in week one, he stuck with that pick. I have since witnessed Barton talk about that pick behind the scenes. I would not say that he is necessarily convicted right now in that. I don't think it's anything he wants to fight over, but he stuck with the pick publicly. And so for that, I think we have to admire the courage. Having said that, I'm not there. And so I think it's a Texas OU fight there. And listen, if you want to find a number three team out there, I'm not going to go as far as to tout TCU, but it should be noted Max Duggan, who was going to be the starting quarterback there before he was ruled kind of medically ineligible. And we didn't think he was going to be playing much, if at all, this year. He randomly got approved. He got cleared. He got medically cleared, according to Gary Patterson, and he is available for week one. So maybe TCU comes out of the shadows in the Big 12. We'll see. Sam is going to wrap us up this morning. I found the Jamon Osmond opt-out at Texas A&M to be very strange because even though he's a good player, I can't really see him going before the sixth round in the draft. If Osmond didn't think he'd be able to improve his draft stock by staying, I get the feeling the offense isn't looking too good. What are your thoughts on this? Sam, some situations just include more than meets the eye. I think this may be one of them. But having said that, 
I don't really know what it is. I just get the feeling with this. And I get the feeling anytime someone's gone this deep into camp and then they opt out, they can put out a statement and I'm willing to take it at face value, but that doesn't mean I may not roll my eyes just a little bit. And at this point, I'm not even talking about Osmond in particular, but just in general, because a number of guys have done this. I mean, it's your choice. It's your decision. You don't owe me an explanation. That's my whole point. You could just put up the deuces emoji and say, I'm not playing this year. Bye. And I can accept it. Having said that, I don't think you make the worst point in the world here, but I'll give you a counter. So your point was, maybe he sees himself as a late round draft pick, but he thinks playing in this offense this year may actually be detrimental to his draft stock. Okay. If that's what he thinks, then good. Actually, if you're an Aggie fan, he's where he needs to be. If that's what he thinks, that's all hypothetical. But I will say this. If you're an Aggie fan, you also are probably pretty excited about some young receiver talent you have there. And sometimes what looks like a pretty detrimental blow of losing an experienced guy, sometimes it's just getting a lot of the underbrush out of the way so you can have some really, really insane growth. And so let's keep an eye on that this year at Texas A&M. What kind of offense they'll have, what style it looks like, how quick those kids can grow up, that remains to be seen. But they've got some young talent out there. Keyword young other keyword, I guess, in a two-word sentence is talent. All right, that wraps it up for us this morning. Again, a friendly reminder slash request. Please give us a five-star review in the Apple Podcast review section. And here's what I give you bonus points for. Go find your mom's phone and your sister's phone and your cousin's phone and just sneak in there when they're not looking. Search Late Kick, subscribe, but really leave a five-star review too. Write us a comment in there. If someone gets on one of their relative's phones and writes a written review and just admits openly, this is, not, this is not even my phone. I'm on someone else's phone. I am mentioning you by name on the next edition of Late Kick Extra. All right, so let's have a great rest of the week. We've got a loaded show anytime we're on the air. Do not miss this podcast. Do not miss shows on the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel from now until forever, but really especially the end of the year. So appreciate you tuning in this morning. For Jordan on the podcast editing side, I'm Josh on the good old-fashioned talking side. Have a great day and God bless. It's the UEFA Champions League on Paramount+. Plus. Europe's top club soccer tournament. Champions versus champions. The best teams facing off in the knockout rounds. Magnificent! And it all takes place. While you're filling out financial reports at work. In the middle of your day. In the middle of your week. So use that second screen. Call in sick. Do whatever you gotta do to tune in Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Nobody watches the UEFA Champions League like us. Stream every match live exclusively on Paramount+. Plus.